Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 24 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Jania Stout, who is managing director and co-founder, along with Chad Wilson of Fiduciary Plan Advisors, which was recently acquired by One Digital. Jania is one of the most well-known advisors within the industry and a great ambassador for the retirement profession. Since we both live in Baltimore, we've been friends and competitors for over 15 years. We even did a workshop together in 2007 when she was at Fidelity, which I got some of my earliest clients from. One of the most impressive things about Jania is that she has built a multi-billion dollar practice, not just once, but twice. On this episode, Jania and I discuss her move many years ago from the record-keeping side of the business to becoming a rock star independent advisor, the keys to building a healthy and thriving culture, how she's seen the role of advisors change over the past five to 10 years, and how she sees the role evolving over the next five to 10, her passion for financial wellness, and her mission to help American workers feel less stressed and be more happy, her process for seeking an M&A partner and why she chose One Digital from 12 different suitors, and the things she misses the most and doesn't miss about running her own shop. We had a lot of fun with this one, and so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Jenny Stout, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. I'm so excited to be here, Josh. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. I, I think we're going to have a good chat. You and I go, we go way back, all the way back to your Fidelity days years ago when you were, I think you, weren't you the number one wholesaler at Fidelity back in the day? I was, but that was many, many years ago. Many I'm years sure ago. everyone out there now could run circles around me. Nah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you have the ability to grow unlike most people in this industry. And, and I remember, in fact, I got my first couple of clients. We did a workshop at the Engineers Club in Baltimore way back when, you know, it was a Fidelity Green Spring. And then we had Jennifer Downs at the time who was who was at Katz Abosh and, and did a workshop. And I actually had those clients my entire career at Green Spring. So thank you. You, you helped me get a kickstarted back in the day. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I got one of your very first books too. I was actually at, I think it was either Sears or somewhere. And you were like, Janya, your first book, Fixing the the 401k. And you ran out to your car and got me a copy and signed it. I think I actually even have it here on my desk somewhere. So I feel fortunate that I got one of the very first Josh Itzo books. So, well, yes. thanks for no, thanks for embarrassing no me and telling everybody I used to hock them out of the back of my uh, the back of my car <laughs> back in the day. So sorry about that, but no hey, we worries. all started somewhere, right? You, you you always start somewhere. Well, let's let's start kind of way back when we don't need to spend a bunch of time, but you know you've been in the industry twenty plus years. Yeah, 25 plus. Yeah. 25 plus. And I think you started at ADP and then you went to Fidelity. That's obviously where we met. You had a tremendous amount of success there. And then I remember you went dark for like six months. I didn't know, like I didn't hear from you. I didn't know what was going on. And and 
originally, I think you wound up at, at Lockton. That was where you kind of got into the advisory side of the business. What was it that prompted you or, or what was kind of the light bulb moment for you to say, hey, I want to get into the advisory space? And, and, and what was so attractive about that? You know, I loved, you know, my career on the record keeping side. I learned a lot and I think it really helped build me to who I am today. But when you represent a product, what was happening, it started to bother me that these clients that I'd be talking with to bring them on to Fidelity, if they had an advisor, whatever I said didn't really count. It was whatever the advisor said. And I was like, wait a minute, I know what I'm doing. I know how this works. And so it really came down to, I just wanted to be, get the respect uh, for the knowledge I had. And, and I also started to see the importance of being independent. I'll never forget, you know, when I made that decision to take the leap into the advisor world, it was right before fee disclosures and, and fee regulation came out. A good friend of mine said, you're crazy to go in and be an advisor at this point, you know, with fee transparency and, you know, the fees being on Schedule C, you know, the advisor's role is going to be diminished because plan sponsors aren't going to want to pay when they find out how much they've been paying. And I, I kind of didn't agree, obviously. So I, I took the leap anyway. And I think myself is probably you would agree. I saw it as an opportunity to do good and to be transparent. So it worked out for me, but that's really, those were the motivating factors really to be independent, to help my clients. And then also I wanted respect by the plan sponsor, not just to be a, you know, schlep in a, a record keeping product. Cause there are a lot of, you know, great people on the record keeping side, but I felt like I could do more as an advisor. You know, it, it's been amazing over the years of my career and obviously, you know, working with different wholesalers on the record keeping side and pretty much to a person when it was just maybe us sitting around shooting the breeze, they would say, I really want to get on the advisory side. And, and I think, you know, part of the challenge with a lot of these folks is they've done very well and they were very well compensated for that over the years. And they felt like they were stuck, that they didn't have the freedom or the flexibility. You know, we, we, I co-founded Greenspring when I was 29 and didn't have a whole lot of obligations. It created a lot of freedom to at least take that, that, that leap. But I think a lot of wholesalers probably deep down have the same feeling that, that, that you did. How scary was that move? You obviously went from a position where, you know, you were doing so well. You had two girls, two young girls at the time. How, how scary or challenging was that, that leap of faith? Well, when I look at every decision I've made in my career and pretty much anywhere, even personally, I kind of act first and then think through it later or else I probably, if I had done the math, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I wasn't, you know, I want to say I was scared, but I really wasn't. I kind of trusted my gut. I've always kind of done that. I Thankfully, I was very well loved as a child and my parents gave me lots of confidence. And I just always believe that if you do good, good things happen to you. And now there was a point in time though, Josh, where the hardest thing for me, and I'll never forget it, when I was early on as an advisor and 
I'd gotten into a prospect and I had to put together a proposal. And I, I remember, you know, putting on paper that my fee was going to be $20,000. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm no longer selling a record keeping service. So like, I'm not selling technology at this point, I'm selling me and just the advice I give and, and the in information I have in my brain. And it was really hard for me to put my, you know, to get myself around that. Like I didn't really feel worthy of $20,000. I was like, how, why is somebody going to pay me $20,000 or pay the firm for just what's in my head? And, but that was going back, what, 15, 16 years ago when I was first an advisor. And now I can say, like, I'm super confident that $20,000 is sometimes a bargain. That's a know? steal. <laughs> That's a steal. Yeah. But it was hard, like coming from the provider side where you're selling, you know, record keeping services and you're selling a website and technology and all these great tools and then going and switching gears to being an advisor and saying, like, pay me this fee for the knowledge I have in my head and, and the experience I have. That's a really weird transition. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, charging a fee of $20,000, but you know, that was hard. So it wasn't that I was nervous or scared. It was just, I wasn't sure or confident. I wasn't used to charging a fee for what I had in my head. Right. And the confidence came after a few years of kind of seeing the impact that we had for that experience and, and really believing in what I knew could impact hundreds and thousands of people because the actions we do as advisors impact people's lives. So that would probably be the biggest kind of hurdle I went through wasn't necessarily fear, but just being confident that I deserved the fee that I was charging. Yeah, I think if all advisors admit that at some point we kind of deal with imposter syndrome when we're starting out, right? And, and I would say what's different about selling a product or a platform is that it's tangible, right? You know, the prospect can kind of see it and sense what they're getting. On the advisory side, it's totally intangible, right? So it's it's like when you go and buy a car, you know, you can test drive a car, you can feel all their seats, you can open the sunroof, put the windows down, see how it handles. You kind of know what you're getting. And I've always found that, you know, it's a lot harder when you're when you're selling an intangible service. There's kind of a leap of faith. I think every prospect before they become a client or to become a client, they have to they have to kind of cross this chasm of, you know, we think we're making a good decision, but like, what's it going to look like, you know, on the opposite end? Yeah. So I think what's super impressive about you is you left Lockton, you went to another firm, you built their retirement practice and built it to scale. And then you went off on your own and, you know, you built fiduciary plan advisors again, and actually, I think, built it past where you were before. So you've actually, you know, you've built two monster practices, which is really, really impressive. One of the things that's key that you know that I know based on kind of our experiences, you know, it's easy to maybe be the face of the firm, but you have to have a really good team around you to support you. And it, I always got the sense that for you, building a, a really healthy and thriving culture on your team was important. 
What, what were some of the ways that, that over the years, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Chad Wilson on my team, or, you know, he's my partner or was my partner before we sold One Digital. But I would say he and I both were aligned very similarly. And the first step is hiring good people. And, and that's hard to do. I mean, it's, you know, there are books and recruiters that are trying to help weed out the bad ones and make sure you only bring in good ones. And so I think I just, part of it is luck from a culture perspective. You know, I think what I've always looked for is hiring people that come at it from a kindness perspective. So it's not just about skill and knowledge. It's about, are you a good person? Like, do you care about what you're doing? And when you do that, I think, you know, culture just kind of naturally evolves because you get a bunch of good people in a room, they're going to have some good culture. I also believe, you know, I played sports in college many years ago, but, you know, I, I, I hated, I remember when we started our, our firm, we got business cards and my card said CEO. I never, I pulled it out one time, hated it. And the whole box of cards was under my desk for the remainder of the, the time because I don't really consider myself a CEO. I kind of consider myself like maybe the coach or the head coach, but we're all a team. And that's truly what I believe. And I, I think that provides also the opportunity to have really great culture because we've got great teamwork. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was in my prior life, we grew it from two of us to 25 people when I left earlier this year. And, you know, culture isn't something that is formulaic. It's not like an A plus B equals C. If it would be, everybody would have a great culture. But I, I do think from a leadership perspective, and this was some advice that I got from a mentor of mine many years ago, is, you know, as, as one of the leaders of an organization, what you need to do is create an environment where culture can come alive, if you will. You can't control what it's going to look like, but you can create the environment that creates the highest probability that a good culture will thrive. And then from a leadership perspective, it's really about being kind of the chief reminder, if you will, of everybody around what that culture looks like. What do you feel like over, over you know, the time from being an advisor and then growing a team, you know, it's, it's, and you probably dealt with the same thing. Like when you first start out, I mean, it took me four years to hire somebody full time to help me. So I was literally doing everything. I felt like a mad scientist. A lot of times, um, nobody really knew what I was doing. What were some of the lessons that you learned in being an advisor that, that really helped make you better at what you, what you do? And also what were some of the lessons that you learned and even some of the mistakes you made, both as an advisor, what you learn from it, but also as, you know, the leader of, of a team and an organization, that head coach that you're talking about. One of the lessons I learned, which didn't come till much later. So I, I wouldn't say, and I actually recall you and I talking on a train ride back from New York. You know, I was burning the candle on both ends and I, you know, I have this great team, but I think I was still very involved with every single client. And just what the lesson I learned was that, you know, you got to let everyone else kind of 
even though it might not be the way you would do it exactly and to kind of let go of control a little bit. And I don't mean to paint a picture that I was controlling. I was just up till two in the morning and up at five in the morning helping and getting involved with every single client. And I will say that one thing that was really interesting when we left the regional firm and started our own, it was a great reminder that it was the team that the client really appreciated. It wasn't It wasn't me, you know, you know, so it's part of a a process you go through with your whole ego, right? Like you think, I think early on in my career, I thought I had to be involved. My clients needed me, like they wanted me, but the reality is as long as you have a good team and and everybody's kind of tracking the same direction, they're going to appreciate your team as much as they appreciate you. and, And sometimes even more. So it took me a long time to, to realize that. And you can't continue to grow unless you start to do that, right? Because you'll, you're going to get bogged down and, and you're not going to have good work-life balance and you're just not going to be able to grow without killing yourself, basically. So yeah. I think that would be the lesson I learned. But again, I didn't learn it early on. I would say I've only learned it in the last like seven years. Yeah, I, I, uh, I feel the same way. I was was similar for many years. I remember that train ride. I think at one point I asked her, I was like, do you trust your team? And you're like, of course, my team's awesome. But I remember you were, you were tired. You were, you were running hard. And I remember you being very vulnerable, which I appreciated and just said, you know, I don't think I can keep this pace up at the way, at the way that it's going. And, and, you know, I think that's a, that that's a lesson that many leaders have to learn is like you said, you can't, not only can you will cap out your growth, it's hard to perform at a high level when your gas tank's empty. Yeah. When you're getting three, four, five hours sleep, you know, back pre-COVID, flying right. here, training there, yeah. driving in DC traffic, you know, you start to miss the little thing. You, you screw up on the little things and they'll start to add up. Right. So, and, and you know, it's funny, Josh, is like, I can't tell you how many people told me that before, like saying, right. hey, you got to trust your team. Not that I didn't trust them, but I I was like, well, but but I'm the one that brought the client on, like they're going to expect to see me. And I've talked to other advisors that have that similar concern. We all kind of, if, especially if you have a, a big personality that maybe brought on that client. So I'm thinking of some other advisors in the country, but I think, you know, every step you take in your career, every turn you make, you try, I try to reflect back and say, what did I learn from this? And I get just as excited about the lessons I learn, even though they're, they're not, sometimes they're an ego blow or they yeah. don't make you feel good, but gosh, it makes you a stronger, better person. So yeah, I think, you know, trusting your team, knowing that, you know, somebody might do a video and or a communications and draft it in different words that than I would personally use, right? But the reality is, if you hired great people, they're gonna your clients gonna be just as impressed with that. So trying to take your ego out of it is 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 important to learn. And that's tough because we are, you know, advisors by nature are very egocentric, I think we want to be. And, and it goes back to, I think, your coaching analogy, which I love is 
advisors need to ask themselves, like you could build a great lifestyle practice and be the face of everything. And I would equate that to, you know, you, advisors need to ask themselves, do I want to be a head coach where the goal is to win, but to help develop players on my team so they can be in positions to succeed? Or do I want to be like the high scorer? You know, if I want to be the high scorer, because it's a very different mindset between the two. And, you know, I think that's also part of the culture piece of if you want to attract very talented, you know, high performers, A players, you have to give them, you know, you, you want to shape for them like, hey, this is what good looks like for us. But you need to then give them the freedom to make their own mistakes as long as they're drunk coloring within the lines. For people to move up and to progress and get better, they have to own that process and you have to give them the freedom to do it. I know I struggled with that for a lot of years because I was kind of a you know, a bit of a control freak around like what good looked like. And, and a lot of times, and I, I'm, you know, looking back at 46 years old, I say, man, I kind of missed the ball, but, but, you know, I thought that my way was the, the only and the best way. And it wasn't until I learned that it's like my kids at some point, you know, I have to, to help try to shape my kids. You know, they have to go out and face the real world at some point. My job is to prepare them that when they do, that they're going to have the highest chance of, of, you know, being successful. And I think it's the same way with teams. And I think when you do that with your team and you give them opportunities and you let them even fail a little bit, you know, not in a way that's going to like blow up a relationship, but that's how they get better. And I think that creates a lot of loyalty to the organization as well, or to the team when they have opportunities to grow and succeed and do a good job. So, and I've always admired you for that because I think you've you know, just on social media, I think I saw a post from you today and, and I think Keith on your team and, you know, you were giving kudos to uh, Keith for being on a webinar or something like that and how smart he was and how much your clients loved him. And, and I think you've always been good at, at being able to, you know, share the praise if you want. Well, I have to, I have to use this. It's funny because I've kind of back to learning to let go and let, you know, trust your people. Just recently, just in the last month, we did a finals presentation for, it was about a $150 million plan. And I brought Catherine Galladay on the finals pitch with us. There were four, four or five of us, four, I think. And it's, you know, she's just been tremendous. She's 25 years old, right? So she's been with us. She's coming up on her two-year anniversary, but I had her do the entire education and communication strategy pitch, which by the way, was the number one focus of this prospect. It was an RFP. We were in the finals, big deal, meaning we were competing with multiple strong advisors. And there was part of me, you know, financial wellness has always been my baby, right? For years, this is what I'm super passionate about. I completely let her go. Like she did the entire thing. I mean, she's 25 years old and she pitched in this big boardroom, you know, this very well-known company, which I'm not going to mention here because we haven't found out yet who won, but, you know, and she was so nervous, but she, not that you would have known, but I knew she was nervous because I was like, yep, you're going to do it. This is going to be you. And she, if you, 
time to how much talk time each one of us had, she had the biggest part of the entire presentation. So, and I thought to myself, you know what? I think she'll do great. And if she doesn't, who cares? Right? Like, and I, it's funny, we had um, someone from One Digital on the health side, an executive sit in on that meeting as an executive sponsor. And he said to me afterwards, he's like, I thought that was so cool that you had Catherine do that piece. He's like, she's so young, but like, it kind of was an interesting way to present, to have such a young person have such a strong presence. So anyway, I just had to share that I I finally have let go, if any, you know, even on big deals, letting go and just trusting the process. Isn't it? humbling and really cool when you see one of your your people like really knock it out of the park there's just like a pride i take it back to parenting you know it's i've got a you, your kids are i think you have one out of college now and maybe one in college yes i have a you're a little further ahead of me but i have a 15 a 13 a 10 and a 7 year old and there's like the pride of a you know of a parent in the workplace when you see one of your employees it's like seeing one of your kids you know, succeed in something where they kind of own the process and they did it and it wasn't you, you know, kind of engineering it for them. So those were always some of my most memorable times in leading a firm was when I got out of the way, um, which was hard for me, but kind of like what you said, and then just to see the team perform. Yeah. um, And then that actually builds, you know, a lot of times advisors think I got to hold on to this relationship, but I actually think that creates stronger bonds with your clients when they know you have talent kind of a, you know, across the team and there are more points of connection with the team, I actually think that creates stronger client relationships. I don't actually think it puts the advisor at risk. Yeah, I, I think so. I, like you said, I, I think it's now it's about really kind of being proud and mentoring the younger generation to come in. And somebody gave me a chance when I was in my twenties and you know, so we've got to let those that next generation come in and start to really feel good about what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a good kind of launching off point or, or we can kind of pivot. How have you seen the role of advisor change over the past five to 10 years? I think for sure, the biggest change is it's it's not just about investments. If anything, the investment side has kind of got commoditized. But what it's interesting because it's you know certainly important. And when you look at the big lawsuits, that's what it's about. The investment structure, primarily how the fees are kind of derived, but really focusing on outcomes and engagement and financial wellness and all that. The advisor, plan advisor community has really shifted quite a bit into that more kind of financial total outcomes perspective, which really kind of speaks to how our teams change. You know, the people you bring on aren't necessarily finance majors, and that's not as important. Now you still need that. And we've got to be super educated around investments but I think there's a need for other types of people on your team because of our roles have changed. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Where, so taking that a step further, where do you see the future of advisory industry going over the next five to 10 years? And what do you think is the most important skill for advisors 
to develop, prepare them for what the future looks like? Well, I think, you know, our clients are going to, you know, the plan sponsor community is going to to rely more heavily on advisors than the record keeper partners, plan design, maybe the engagement side of it. So for example, earlier today, we were doing all our videotaping. We use a a third party that helps us with that, but we're, we're really becoming communication experts, right? Like when I think about job openings or positions that I want to add to the team, it's really all about communications, graphics. You know, one thing that One Digital has is a huge marketing and communications department that we can tap into, but also having someone on our team that does a lot. That's that's a lot of t- where we spend our time. And it's not that it, it it's not that record keepers can't do it because they've got bigger communications departments than we do. But I think uh, coming at it a little bit differently and having it more customized to that individual client. Big companies can get that from the record keeper, but they're they're going to be in more in the large market. So in that mid market space, there's still a gap there. So I think that's where we're heading is more around being engagement experts or advisors. Uh, nobody likes the word expert. So. Engagement um, advisors and helping, what does that mean? Like building benefit programs that really align with the workforce. So it's going to go beyond just the retirement plan. It's going to go on into health savings accounts, student loan payoff programs, you know, all these other, like if you think about the fintech world, I mean, there's a new fintech company popping up on a weekly basis. And you know, they're all going after employers to say, hey, offer this as a benefit to your workforce. So our clients are getting inundated with all these different benefit programs, and they really need a leader to help them decide how to put it all together. And um, I think that that's really what we're going to go to. I It will be interesting, Josh, to see like 10 years from now, are we going to be called plan advisors, right? Retirement plan advisors? I don't know. It almost, it may come to a point where we're not just talking about the retirement plan. So what are we going to be called? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting kind of the evolution. And I know uh, I had Vince Morris on who leads One's Digital's Retirement and Wealth Practice. I had him on last podcast. This is the first time I've had two people from the same company on a podcast and certainly back to back, but uh, you know, he, he's just a, he's a rock star and I know that one digital and, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the discussion because that's a, a relatively new transition for you and for your team. But, you know, obviously the big, the big push it seems around one digital is this convergence of health and wealth and retirement. So, you know, you talked about wellness and I know that, was a, has been a passion. I, I feel like you were on board the wellness and education train, if you will, pretty early on. I had Liz Davidson from Financial Finesse on a few episodes back. She's she's awesome. And, uh, you know, she started her firm in 1999. been calling her the OG of financial wellness. I think potentially she even invented the term back in the day, certainly popularized it. But you were an early advocate for this. And I know it was a 
was a passion for yours. And actually, in, in speaking before we started recording, you had talked about even within kind of a niche around that for you personally. But talk a little bit about your feelings about financial wellness. Why was it something that you connected with so closely? And you know, what are the, some of the things that you've tried to do to innovate around that over the years that have helped you be successful? I don't know if this really has anything to do with it, but I always kind of feel like it does. I, I was a philosophy major in college. I was actually a double major, poli-sci also, but philosophy I fell into just because I loved it. I loved kind of the thinking side of it. The, and what was interesting, I kind of fell into the 401k world, which most of us did. Nobody went to college for this, but I remember I was part of the GBC, Greater Baltimore Committee Leadership Program. This was back in my Fidelity days. And, you know, it's, it's a really cool program that you go through and you get to experience what the community's going through. And, you know, it's got 50 members, 25 are nonprofits leaders and 25 for-profit leaders, all kinds of diversity And we'd go through and look at all these programs that were happening in Baltimore, you know, like the the food shelters. We spent a day riding in a cop car in the hardest neighborhoods in Baltimore. I went through that program because I felt I felt bad that I didn't know what was going on in my own neck of the woods. Right. Mm -hmm. Here I am, you know, living out in the county and. I'll never forget somebody told me, this was years ago, but that these kids are sharing books in school and they have to take one out. You know, you have to check it out because they only have one book per five kids. And I was like, that's insane, right? So I felt like I needed to go through this program. So sorry for the long story, but long story short, at the end of the program, the executive director of the program goes to breakfast with everybody one at a time. And I remember going to breakfast with him and I had been at Fidelity for a while and he was asking me what I wanted to do like with the rest of my career. And I said, you know, I'm at this point where, and remember I was selling a product, a solution, but it was a product. And I said, you know, I don't know if this is what I was put on earth to do, right? Like, I I feel like I, I really need to impact people's lives more after experiencing what I went through. And he shared something with me that was like, you know, maybe it was just the right time, but he said, everybody can make an impact in the world. It's, you know, it doesn't mean you have to go work for a nonprofit to do that. And I think from that point, it kind of opened my eyes to looking at what I do really matters. And it's not about selling services. And, you know, that also helped kind of the catalyst for me to going to be an advisor. And then, you know, making sure we're taking care of the the masses, working America. And I, like you, early on, I mean, I didn't have a big team. So I was doing all the one-on-one meetings and I really loved it. Like the connection you have with people was amazing. Like it's amazing how much people share with you. But then at the end of that meeting for them to say, thank you. Like, you know, I can't, I feel so much better now. Like I I feel like I have a clearer path on where I need to go. And just, it was really selfish in the sense that I felt good because I was helping other people feel good. So that's why I fell in love with financial wellness. 
or what they call financial wellness today is really just about helping people. And that goes, that ties into like the people that I ended up hiring over the years were good people because it's funny, we don't always hit it out of the ballpark with people. We all make mistakes. And I, I remember we had somebody on our team that just, you know, was annoyed with people. Right. And I was like, this isn't going to work. Right. Cause like we, we gotta, like, you gotta take it. You gotta listen. You gotta care. And if you don't, it's, it's just not a good fit. So we've learned kind of, I've learned that when I'm interviewing somebody trying to figure out like, what's their, why, like, do they care about helping people? Cause that's really at the end of the day, what we're doing. And, and you spent a lot of time I've, I've seen over the years, I'm assuming this came from Simon Sinek and, and his book, Start With, Start With Why. But, you know, you've, you've focused and, and promoted kind of your why, you know, with, with, within to kind of brand your firm and within what you do and on, on social media like LinkedIn. What is your why? And, you know, what was the process like for being able to develop that and identify what it was? What my why is, is to help working America feel less stressed and be happy. A couple of years ago, it was helping working America feel less stressed about money, right? That's kind of how it started. It was like, okay, we're, we're helping people with money. But, you know, the more I thought about it and the more interactions I had, we took off the about money because really we're just helping people, right? So we cut off the about money. And it was just helping working America feel less stressed, period. Because that could be a plant sponsor, whether it's helping them with compliance, filling out a darn form. You know, nobody likes filling out forms. We'll fill it out for them, um, you know. And then I added the and be happy because last year we actually had, we added to, we do 18 webinars a year and we add, well, we used to do 12, now we do 18. We added a happiness webinar and it's one of our most attended webinars. So we bring in a happiness expert. We talk about raising your happiness level. I kind of fell in love with that concept. I was uh, fascinated with, there's a Harvard professor that teaches a, a course on happiness. And if you read about it, there are things you can do to raise your happiness level. And I thought, we should be doing this with our participants. Like we have this amazing opportunity to connect with working America. We don't have to stop with just, you know, save 10 to 15%, pay off your debt. Like let's help them be happy too. So that's really our why is to, at the end of the day, make people happy. I love it. I love it. And I love the lesson in that is that it was an iterative process, right? Sometimes we get so kind of married to an idea that we, we're not willing to be flexible. And I love the fact that, you know, you had the, the emotional awareness, if you will, to kind of step back and say, okay, we don't want to change the underlying kind of core purpose, but let's modify it. Let's evolve it. And I think that's, that's just a really awesome, I think an awesome story. And I think a really good lesson because we had a we had a similar thing that 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 we dealt developed at Greenspring, and it's ironic for those who are listening. Janie and I, she's moving, but uh, you know, into Annapolis. But but we live about 
five minutes away from each other. A funny little story is we were talking one time and the house that, that, that she lived in for 20 years, I actually uh, knew the girl who, when I was in high school, grew up there and allegedly might have thrown up in the bushes at one point in time at a party in high school. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it's, it's hard to compete when Janya is in and her team are in your, in your local market. But, you know, our, our core purpose that, that, you know, we had developed at Greenspring back in the day was similar, was to improve lives by helping people make better decisions for those, for themselves and those who depend on them. And just like you, it wasn't financial necessarily financial related. That could be, you know, a lot of that could be an employee coming in and wanting to get advice from you or mentorship about an issue that they're dealing with, or that could be a participant. It could be about money. Sometimes it's, you're right, those conversations that you have, there's there's this incredible, you know, finances are so personal and so private, but when you build trust with somebody, it's amazing how vulnerable they'll be and they'll talk to you about things that they don't talk to anybody else about. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the advice you give them doesn't really have a lot to do with, you know, finances alone, or it could be you're serving on a nonprofit board and you're, you know, you're helping that organization, you know, make decisions about their people or you're sitting, you know, advising a retirement committee and those people are making decisions for their organization, but also for the people that depend on them. So, you know, it's interesting. I think the things that have motivated you similar to has motivated me throughout throughout my career. And I think it's interesting in that that why we called it our core purpose, why we existed, but it, it didn't have anything to do with finances. Certainly that folded up underneath, but that wasn't kind of the end game, if you will. Yeah. So let's pivot. So you, you recently went through kind of a bombshell within the industry. You wound up selling your firm or, or to One Digital and partnering with One Digital, which was a really big announcement. There's a ton of M&A and consolidation within the industry. And uh, the rich seem to get be getting richer. So there's, you know, obviously Cap Trust, there's One Digital, you know, some of the other big players, whether it be like a Hub or an Alera, Sageview has been pretty active as well. It seems to me that that One Digital and Cap Trust are, are in my opinion, have kind of like moved out at the the head of the race, if you will. What was the process that brought you to the point where you said, you know what, it's time for us to find an acquisition partner? What brought you to that? I'll be honest, I wasn't looking to sell. It wasn't like on my game, my, you know, business plan necessarily, like my five-year horizon. We had two other investor partners, and they kind of brought it up to us just as uh, one of the bigger firms had approached us to inquire if we'd look. And I said, you know what, I'll be a good team player. We can go ahead and go through the process. But in my head, I was like, why would I sell? We're doing great. Like we're building, we're growing, we're loving what we're doing. We didn't need like back office support. I mean, we have a lot of not, don't get me wrong. It's not that we couldn't use it, but I felt like it wasn't hindering our growth at that. At it that was point. good. It was what you had was good enough. Good enough. To be yeah. Successful. At least for, you know, and, and really I kept thinking, wouldn't it be cool to be on the other side of that and to not necessarily acquire, but merge with other firms, you know, like 
before you left, Josh, like you and, you know, some other great advisors that I think, like, how about let's become a bigger boutique consulting firm, right? And I used to think, like, let the big guys and gals get bigger and bigger. I'll stay small and, and nimble and give really good consulting and services. So long story short, we decided to talk to one and I thought, well, if we're going to talk to one, we might as well talk to two, which then turned into 12. And uh, then it, it turned into, no joke, a year-long process. Thankfully, it was all during COVID and quarantine. So it was not a lot of travel. It was all very long Zoom calls. And we narrowed it down pretty quickly, you know, to three or four firms. And... I knew just when I started talking to the leadership at One Digital, you know, not only Vince and some, and you know, Corby Dahl and and Jason Chapnick and Jamie Greenleaf. I mean, they had just a year prior brought over some really rock star teams, you know. So I, my eyes were very open to like, how cool would that be? But then I met the founders of One Digital, Mike Sullivan and Adam Brockman, that are just amazing humans. And really, I mean, that's really what it came down to. You know, I will say like, there's some great firms out there. So, but I just knew culturally and like in back to like going through my gut and what I feel, One Digital kind of had me at hello. So (laughs) that's kind of, and, and so by the time we got through the end, I was like, I probably was the one partner out of all of us that was more excited than anyone. So that whole, you know how they say like, you should look for a job when you're not looking, like when you're happy. I was happy. I wasn't, you know, looking to do this. And number one, it had to be great for our clients and equally as good for our employees. And, you know, the money side of it really did. I've never followed the dollars, honestly. Like everything I've done has always been, does it feel right? Is it good? And then, you know, thankfully it just works out financially too. The dollars aren't a bad bad perk as well. That's right. Now I wouldn't Um, have done it for nothing, but yes, it does help. (laughs) What would be your advice to call it independent firms and advisors that are at that crossroads of, do I keep going in alone? Do I look for a partner? As you learn, and you know, it's funny that you, you talk to, that's like, a, that's like a 12 record keeper RFP you have to go through. What would be your advice to advisors or firms that are thinking or considering what their options are moving forward? Yeah, I think I didn't do this. So because I I wasn't planning on joining a different firm, but looking back, what ultimately happened was you've got to figure out what you're looking for, right? Like what's the end game for you? Is it that you need to have a bigger presence so you can win the bigger deals? I mean, because that's why some advisors do this because maybe they're really good, but they only have 500 million. And they, or a billion, and they need to say they've got 70 billion or, you know, because RFPs, the landscape. You got to check the box. You got to check the box even to get a look. Yeah. So some, some might say that for me, it was really important. Like I said, it had to be good for the clients, good for the employees. But I also was very interested in collaboration. 
So one of the questions that I always asked at the end of all these due diligence calls was, what are you going to do to ensure that all these firms you're buying, that there's really going to be a cohesive unit? I mean, some firms might not care. Some firms wanted to say, hey, you can buy me. I want to plug into your tools, but let me just be like in this island and keep running the business the way I've always been. That's the value prop of some of the roll-up firms that are out there. That's right. That's right. But I think Chad and I were like, look, if we're going to do this, we want to be able to truly become like that whole team again. I didn't want to have 15 different teams under one umbrella. What are you doing to make sure we're one team? A lot of the firms didn't really have a good, good answer for that. So, or some had a really good answer. It's like, you do it our way and that's really how you do it. And I I thought with One Digital, they didn't have it all figured out just yet, which I I liked because that means that we could have a voice in where we're going, but they had it figured out enough that I wasn't like starting from scratch, Mm -hmm. right? But most importantly, they were super open-minded and very forward thinking more than anyone I felt that we were talking to. So my advice would be kind of figure out what your end game is. And just like when you're doing an RFP with a client, like they might say, you know, we don't care about the website, right? We just want really good, I don't know, service, right? Everybody wants good service. But, and then what happens? The finalists come in, they show them the the shiny objects, they show them the cool technology and the website. And then they go to vote and they're like, well, we like that website the best. Right. Well, that wasn't important. Like, right. you know, so like making sure you understand what's important and keep checking in with yourself. Like maybe your priorities have changed throughout the process. Maybe you weren't aware that that would be important to you. But like that would be my advice. And for me, it's don't don't just look at the dollars, even though, I mean, Obviously, that had built something of value. Of course, you're going to look at the dollars, but it has to. Yeah, I think you're different, not than anybody, because I think there's, you know, the the advisor community. I I do think has leveled up over the past few years, but I'll be interested to see. You know, there's so much money from the PE side. The demand is certainly higher than the supply, which you're seeing multiples and valuations obviously go up. Interested to see how things shake out over the next three to five years where you had advisors that maybe as they went through that process, it's like, hey, I'm looking at just the financial aspect of this. And then they get in and three or five years down the road, they're like, yeah, I got a bunch of money, but like this sucks. Like all the things that I enjoyed, I don't have that voice. I don't have that influence. You know, I'm an employee now. I'm not an actual, I don't make kind of the decisions. It sounds like for you, you were thoughtful around wanting to find a place that wasn't like that. But I do, I think there's going to be a lot of people who have seller's remorse down the road when they kind of get in and they realize, hey, this wasn't exactly what I thought it was. Or maybe I didn't kind of run through a, a process and vet it the way that I should. What do you miss the most about running your own shop? And I know you love what, where you are and with One Digital, but like, what do you miss the most? I really don't miss much, Josh. I feel like I'm still doing the same thing I've always done. Like it's really very, but if I had to say, if you, if you're going to make me answer something, 
Um, don't 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 just sing from the one digital hymnal on this one. Like, what's the one thing that? No, you, it's true that, though. You know, but I know, it, I know it, I know it is. But I'm saying there's got to be something that you look back and you go, oh, I, that I could just hire somebody like tomorrow. And you know, I've worked for larger companies before. I was at Fidelity and ADP. When you work for big firms, bigger firms, you know. There's a process when you hire someone, you got to like submit a form and, you know, get, so there is a little bit of like, you got to do a little extra work. It's funny the we hired somebody the first week we came over to one digital and I didn't know there was a process like, like trying to get him on payroll was like a little bit harder. They're like, Oh no, no, we, you have to wait until the beginning of the month. I'm like, uh, no, he's starting on Monday. Like he, he already quit his job. He's coming over. We got to figure out a way to pay him. So just like, that's what I miss is it's nothing horrible that I can't get through, but it's just getting, getting used to the fact that you, there's now a bigger entity that you have rules you have to follow from a, from that perspective. I think that's the biggest thing to realize that there is no perfect decision. There is no perfect situation. There's always some trade-offs in decisions like these. I mean, I've, I've dealt it with leaving Greenspring. Like there's, it's been an incredible experience. It's been hard at times. And there were, there were, there were just trade-offs, you know, so you don't get, I wish I could say every single thing was, you know, unicorns and rainbows. There are some things that I really miss or some things that I didn't know were probably as important to me, or I discounted those things. And they're just kind of trade-offs. The key is making sure that you really understand those trade-offs, you're prepared for that. And you know, you don't look backwards through rose-colored glasses, that you kind of own your decisions, you're accountable for the decisions that 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 you make and all that that entails. So what's the thing that you miss the least? That I have to produce everything myself. Like let's say, for example, we were gonna do a new a new pitch on ESG, uh, let's say something like ESG. Yeah. And, and if I needed to do a presentation about that, I would have to produce it or someone on my team would, and then I would, you know, look at, look it over and help them or whatever. Now I've got 13, 14 teams across the country. Love Microsoft teams. I'm on this like chat group with them. I'm like, Hey, does anyone got an ESG presentation or We've been sharing best practices for the cybersecurity audits and things like that. All of that stuff would have been just our little island here. We'd be producing it ourselves. Hmm. But now what's awesome is you've got all these great advisor teams and maybe like five people will respond and be like, here's what I got. Here's what I got. And now you look at it and you're like, wow, let's make this, you know, if you take five versions and create one. So one thing too is there's people at One Digital that are working on producing like the best of the best. So, you know, that Josh to me, I feel like I've worked tirelessly at producing things yeah. and now I can just plug into a bunch of people that are like-minded. Yeah. No, I think that's a really cool that kind of collegial and now it's you know, it's really more of a 1 plus 1 equals 3, right? Instead of a 1 plus 1 equals 2. That's, that's what right. I hear. That's what I hear you say. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I typically end with a question, and 
while most of the people who listen to this are in the industry, there are also some plan sponsors that do as well. And that's originally I created this for plan sponsors. I'm shocked that plan sponsors don't want to spend an hour listening to uh, <laughs> listening to these things. But what would be your best piece of advice to make ERISA fiduciaries smarter, whether that's an advisor, whether that's a plan sponsor or a committee member? What's your best piece of advice? Understand fees. <laughs> Gosh, it, you know, this is what we live and breathe every day. Gosh, being better fiduciaries. I would say if you're a plan sponsor, you know, make sure you're aligned with a great plan advisor. There's lots of them out there these days. You know, when I started my career on the advisory side, there weren't that many, but now they're in every city. There's somebody that can take really good care of you and expect more from, you know, whoever you're with. And then from a plan advisor advice, I would just say, read as much as you can. And and this is not, Josh did not pay me for this, but Josh is a tremendous writer and communicator on all things fiduciary. So he he might even cut this from the podcast because he's going to think that it sounded like it was canned, but read his books. No, I mean, I, I really believe that for all the years I've been in the business, I re- I've been reading Josh's stuff, even when we were competitors, you know, 10 miles apart from each other, I was reading Josh's stuff. But I think, you know, just go out there and network, don't hide under a rock, go to conferences, meet other, I mean, my best friends are in this industry and they're all over the country. It's funny, there's some advisors are probably good advisors, but they don't really take advantage of all the stuff that's out there in the industry. There's some amazing conferences coming up, Wealth at Work. We just had Napa Summit in Las Vegas. There's a women's conference for Napa in Florida in January. So like, this is where you I get my best ideas and become a better fiduciary by talking to my peers. So that's what I would say, get involved, go to conferences, read Josh's books, you know, <laughs> listen to his podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, where can people go to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? Oh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I have Snapchat. I'm not on TikTok. I, I am on TikTok, but only for viewing. It's funny. People are talking about like financial services and TikTok and I've watched some of them and I'm like, you know, I don't want to say never say never, but I just don't see myself on TikTok. <laughs> right. But uh, I definitely think LinkedIn is a great resource. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jania, thanks so much for being a, uh, a guest. I think you have been obviously had a stellar, awesome career and a great road ahead of you. I think you've been a, a wonderful ambassador for the industry, which I really appreciate. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to be on the show. I think uh, listeners will get a lot out of it. Thank you, Josh. It was really fun. I always love talking to you. You're you're one of my favorites, so I appreciate it. Thanks for asking me to join. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Jania Stout. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula 
and fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.